Well, let me add my welcome uh, this morning. My name is Alistair. I am the lead pastor here at St. Pete's. Uh, And as you just heard from that reading, that was a little longer than usual. If you are just joining us, last week we looked at the first half of that reading, Luke uh, verses 16 through 30, and we talked about the calling of Jesus. And now we want to explore what it looks like for Jesus to live that out and for us to join him in that. And that's why we've had a longer reading. So, Uh, If you are just joining us, we're glad you're here. And before we really dig into the word, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for this orderly account of the gospel that Luke wrote down and that's been preserved for us. And we give you thanks for this great opportunity to discover more and more who Jesus is and what he's all about. And Lord, we, we, we come to you in a variety of places this morning. Some of us are eager and, and ready um, to get at the day, to seize the day. Some of us are limping into it. Some of us are just downright tired. And we ask that you would meet us where we are and that you would woo us and call us back to yourself and help us find our place in your mission. So as we open your word, we ask that you to apply it to our minds so we not grow shallow that you'd apply it to our hearts so we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet. We would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, last week we talked about our why. A person's why is their driving force, their mission, their purpose. It anchors their lives and sets them in a direction. And when you hear this why statement, whether it's a poem or a poem, as my English teacher in high school used to say, a poem or a a slogan or a statement. When you hear it, it explains them. It explains the person or the organization and the team and what they're all about. And so last week, we wanted to look at the why of Jesus. Luke spells this out for us midway through chapter 4 of his gospel. Jesus picks up a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. This is the why of Jesus. This is what he is all about. This is who he is. When you hear these words, they explain what anchors Jesus. They explain his driving force. So no matter where we are throughout the Gospel of Luke, from here on out, They're all a picture into the why of Jesus. These words explain everything he will teach and everything he will do. And we see that in this extended reading from Luke 4 that we had today. Last week, we looked at how we are called to be recipients of the why. Yes, Jesus preaches good news to the poor, but from God's vantage point, we are all because Jesus is preaching this good news to the poverty of the human spirit. And so this week, we want to look at how we are not called to just be recipients of this good news, but ambassadors as well. That we're actually invited to become extensions of the why of Jesus. So I have three things I want to look at this morning. The first is the invitation into the why of Jesus, uh, and then living with the why of Jesus, and finally, the problem of it. So the invitation, living, and the problem. Let's begin uh, with our first point, the invitation. Uh, Our reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 
37, hopefully you notice, describe uh, two different synagogue moments in the life of Jesus. Uh, The first one is in Nazareth, uh, Jesus' hometown, and the second is in Capernaum. In the one synagogue, people marvel over the gracious words spoken by Jesus, and in the next, they are astonished or amazed by his authority in the spiritual realm. But as I said last week, it's not enough to marvel over what Jesus said. The same people who marvel over his words moments later try to murder him. And in the same way, it's not enough to just be amazed over what Jesus does because the same people who are amazed later in the gospel try to have Jesus destroyed. Marveling in amazement. Marveling in amazement. I don't know about you, but they just make me think of like an old-timey poster for a circus coming to town. You know, you're going to marvel at the sights and you're going to be amazed by the death-defying feats. And if Jesus was content to be an entertainer for us, marveling over him, being amazed by him, appropriate responses. But Jesus is not content to be our entertainer. That is not why he came. Now, we can treat him this way. We can approach the life and teachings of Jesus as if they should be reducible to a tweet or a soundbite or an inspirational Instagram image. We might dig deeper and listen to sermons, but we approach sermons week after week and evaluate them, not on whether they illuminated who Jesus is to us, but how we felt about the sermon. Did it amaze me? Did I marvel over something? Was there good storytelling? Was there a joke? But Jesus did not come for us to be entertained. It doesn't mean we should be boring about Jesus by any means, but he's not an entertainer. Of course, it's natural to marvel and be amazed over Jesus. He is, after all, the most interesting and astonishing person in existence. And as we look to his life in the Gospels, of course we should marvel over what he taught and be amazed by what he did. But these feelings are not one and the same with faith. You see, it's one thing to marvel over his gracious words. It's another thing to have grace take a hold of you. It's one thing to be amazed by his authority. It's another thing to come under his authority. Jesus wants more than us marveling and being amazed. He wants us to be taken a hold of grace and to come under his authority. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just proclaim good news to us so that we can have more information to stockpile somewhere. It's an invitation to share in his very life and to find our place in his mission. It's an invitation from Jesus to give him our deepest loyalties, our allegiance. And this is what we mean by faith. To believe in such a way that your life moves in the direction of Jesus. Or more accurately, Faith is moving in the direction of Jesus, with Jesus, because of Jesus. This is the sort of response Jesus is looking for, for those who hear his good news. Sometimes, faith can be reduced simply to believing something about who Jesus is. And of course, this is a very important part of faith. We do need to believe certain things about Jesus. But if we stop there, we're stopping short. We're reducing Jesus to just some intellectual concept to grasp, rather than the Lord who wants to take a hold of our lives. And if we stop at just getting right belief, 
Our passage shows us that we've merely caught up to what the demons already know about Jesus anyway. They readily declare in our passage that Jesus is the Holy One of God and that Jesus is the Son of God. And so you might, you may or may not have clarity about who Jesus is. You know, is he an interesting spiritual leader? Is he an ethical instructor? You know, or is he an exaggeration of his disciples' minds? But there's no confusion about the identity of Jesus in the spiritual realm. He is the Holy One. He is the Son of God. He is the crucified and risen Lord and Savior. Now look, I get it. It takes time to figure out who Jesus is. It took me time. It'll take you time. So if you're still just exploring, is Jesus really who he said he is? Take as much time as you need. Ask the questions you need to ask and seek after an answer. Because Jesus says, those who seek will find, but take no more time than necessary because the same scriptures say today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. So take as much time as necessary, but no more time than you need. Or if you're just, you know, deconstructing some negative experiences you've had in the church or the faith that you were brought up in, again, take as much time as you need to do that, but Don't fall into the myth that time heals all wounds. That this baggage that's been put on your shoulders around faith will just get lighter if you ignore it long enough. Deconstruction, healthy deconstruction, takes some intentionality. It takes asking some good questions and exploring the root problems and doing that in a community and with people you trust who will show you patience and gentleness and walk alongside you. But I don't want you to fall into a pitfall of deconstruction. Deconstruct the baggage. Deconstruct the bad ideas that have been attached to Jesus. But don't try to deconstruct Jesus. Deconstruct all the clutter. Move it away as much as you can so you can get back to that firm foundation, Jesus Christ himself. Take as much time as you need, but no longer than necessary. But when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, faith doesn't stop there. Our belief is how we are saved, but how we are saved changes our lives. James puts it like this in his letter in chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, I want to make sure we don't get our wires crossed at this point. James, he's not saying that we have to somehow earn or secure our salvation by anything we can do. James would agree with Paul that we are saved by grace through faith, that it is a sheer 
gift from God, something God does for us that we could not do for ourselves. So when we bring this spiritual poverty to God, when we bring our nothingness to Him, He lavishes us with His grace because He's rich in mercy. He forgives our sins. He makes our lives clean and spotless, but He also gives us new life. So when we receive the gift of grace, James is simply pointing out that our lives should be transformed. We are in a process of being changed by grace. So if you have faith and it's not changing your life in any observable way, even small glimmers, James is saying something is probably amiss with your faith. When you receive the gift of grace, the gift changes you. Because faith means believing and following. Giving our allegiance to Jesus and living the way he asks us to live. Not to earn his approval, but because we have it. We're loved through and through. And now we have the freedom to serve God and walk in his ways because we know that anything God asks of us is for our good and flourishing and is offered to us because he is a father who delights in us and loves us, not because we are doing what he asks, but because we are his children who he loves. Grace upon grace. Now, this isn't a sermon about grace, and I have no idea where I am in my notes. That one is free of charge because it's about grace. Give me one second. You see, when we receive grace, we are invited to be caught up into the why of Jesus. We get to be recipients of grace, and here's the good news, ambassadors of grace. Recipients and ambassadors. We are representatives on behalf of Jesus. His message becomes our message. His words become our words. His power becomes our power. We share in his life. And so this is our second point. Living within the why of Jesus. Let's look back at uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 one more time. Jesus reads from Isaiah and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Isaiah the prophet wrote these words hundreds of years before Jesus was born. They describe him to a T. Jesus embodies these words. These words are uniquely and particularly about Jesus. I want to be clear about that. But the New Testament also gives us a picture uh, of how the church share in this mission of Jesus. That the same spirit of Jesus that went out into the world proclaiming good news, the living spirit of Jesus himself rests upon us, dwells in us, empowers us, and sends us out to be an extension of his mission. So these words, in some way, also describe our own purpose as followers of Jesus. We preach the same good news. So whether it's telling others about the gospel, whether that's through conversation 
or evangelism, whether it's serving those in need or being generous financially or visiting the sick or the imprisoned, advocating for the marginalized and oppressed, you name it, each one of us are invited to be an extension of the good news that Jesus proclaimed with our words and especially with our lives. But our roles, and I want you to take note of this, our roles within the mission of Jesus will be diverse and unique because that's how God wants it. That's how God wants it. As followers of Jesus, we participate in his mission, but it looks different for each of us. So let me just tell you a couple of stories to help us envision what it can look like to be an extension of the why of Jesus. When Julia and I first planted St. Peter's Fireside, it was just the two of us. And so we were trying to invite people to be a part of us in proclaiming this good news to the city of Vancouver. And early on, before we ever had services, we met a guy named Ryan. And I went for a walk with Ryan on the seawall. He said, yeah, I won't join any church unless they run Alpha. Now, I didn't really know what Alpha was, but I said, hey, we'll run Alpha because we really needed people. And that's how you grow a church. Now, I'm so glad I did that because I can't tell you how many times we've run Alpha at this point, but I love it. And here's why I love Alpha. The goal of Alpha, if you're not familiar, is to create a neutral space where anybody can hear the message of Jesus and have good conversation about it with uh, healthy questions being asked and no real agenda other than creating good conversation around faith, life, and God. Easy enough. But what I love about Alpha is that it requires all kinds of different people in temperament. To run Alpha well, yes, you need people to boldly invite friends and family and co-workers to come to Alpha when it starts. This is true. And that usually appeals to a certain type of personality type. Usually, you know, the extroverts. Usually the Enneagram 3s or whatever that is. You know, the person who loves to tell everybody about things and new things. They have no problem inviting people to Alpha. Now, to be fair, I've seen people of all kinds of temperament invite people to Alpha and stretch themselves. But you need the people who do the inviting. But equally, you need the people who are gifted in hospitality who might not even want to lead the conversation, but help set the table, help create an environment, help think about the lighting, whatever it is, the food. You need those people to help create an environment where people feel welcomed and and can let their guards down and realize we really are just here to build relationships and have conversations. Yes, focus conversations, but conversations. And then you need people who are gifted in prayer, people who are willing to sit at the table and quietly pray while the conversation is happening. Then you need people who are crazy enough to go stand on Granville Street with me pre-pandemic and just invite strangers off of the street for the launch nights. I mean, we do that. And we fill up the room with guests who would have not otherwise come. I don't expect anyone to do that, but we do it. And so you see, like, I love Alpha. I'm glad Ryan said I wouldn't join St. Pete's unless you do Alpha, because it requires so many different parts of the body to come together to create a space for people to hear the message of Jesus, to hear this good news, and to have an opportunity to decide, is he really who he claimed to be? Now, do you know much about windmills? I know that's a hard right, but do you know much about windmills? I didn't know much about windmills until I met my friend John. Uh, John uh, is passionate about ending hunger in Africa. And so he, he went on a missions trip with a church I was a part of in Orlando. He lives in Orlando. He went to Malawi with this goal of like, okay, we're going we're gonna to end hunger. Uh, how are we going to do that? 
And he realized you can't really tackle the problem unless people have food. And you can't really supply food unless agriculture has regular access to water, especially through the dry season. So where did John start? He decided he was going to teach people how to build windmills. And he knew that windmills can be really sophisticated, and this is a problem. So he moved, you know, goes back home, he's in Orlando, and in his backyard starts building a full scale, like the windmill you're picturing in your head, out of wood in his backyard. Neighbors loved him. Full-size windmill. But then he realized this is still too sophisticated. The resources you need, the amount of wood, all the different things, it's not realistic for an area that has abject poverty. So John went back in time and he found a design in the second century that was an Arabic design and he readapted it so that it could be built out of common everyday objects you would find in abject poverty. And it has been remarkably successful over the past decade. It has transformed entire villages and saved lives. But here's what I love about this story. John is an architect. That's how he pays his bills. He gave all of these designs away for free to universities throughout Africa, and they've been empowering local people to build these windmills through different villages, and it's saving lives. John doesn't earn anything from it. It's not his job. It's just what he thought serving faithfully looked like for him. And so he took his skills as an architect, he took his creativity, and he figured it out. And you think, oh, that's like a big extroverted person. If you met John Drake, you would realize this is the most introverted, shy, quiet person that's not going to pitch you some big idea. He's just going to use his gifts to serve Jesus. If you want to learn more about it, because I love this, this ministry, africawindmillproject.org. One more story. Our very own Jackie Cassandi. She founded this beautiful store that's now located on Granville Island, and they offer these one-of-a-kind, ethically-made, handmade goods. And so Jackie, she works closely with artisans and entrepreneurs in East Africa, and I'm quoting from their mission statement now, to improve, introduce, and advance their product design and quality to meet the current market trends, build their businesses, and sustainably uh, increase their income. Now Jackie, she's originally from Kenya, and she had this dream of starting a business like this 15 years ago. It was stirring in her heart. And she's been doing it for the past six years. It's a dream come true. And along the way, I was talking to her about this, and she said, I've just been praying and asking the Lord to, to meet me. And it's just like a childlike conversation. I tell Jesus what I need, and sometimes he provides it in the way I think, and sometimes not. And she told me, like, even with this big dream she has and six years into it, a, a, you know, a storefront on Granville Island, um, she still hasn't seen the dream come to fruition. She's still in process. She's still just asking Jesus day after day to meet her in her work. And here's what I love about it is she doesn't see this as a chance to just slap a Jesus fish on every product she sells. You know, it's not like going into Forever 21 and on the bottom of, you know, a bag made in China polluting the earth is John 3.16 so that you're aware at least it's Christians destroying the planet with fast fashion. I don't have an opinion about this. Um, you know, she's not doing that. She's empowering people 
and developing ethical structures to sell beautiful things and building bridges, showing in her life what it means to love well and follow the Lord and sometimes having opportunities to point to him. She's integrating her faith with her work. I love it. You know, some of my favorite pastoral meetings are when people come to me and they say, look, can you talk to me about how I'm going to integrate my faith with my work? One of my favorite initiatives at St. Peter's is run by Emmanuel Fung, and he's a lawyer, and he said, I want to help lawyers in the process at law school, you know, lawyers in development, learn more about faith and work. And so he just started a group at UBC. And over the years, it's taken root, and he just runs with it, and it's beautiful. I love when people ask me, how do I demonstrate Christ-likeness to my coworkers and to my boss? Like, what does it look like for me to integrate my faith and my work? Or how do I invest in the next generation? How do I help raise up new believers in the faith and help them learn what it means to follow Jesus in their lives? These are the sort of questions people ask when they're enamored with the why of Jesus. When they see that our faith is not just about believing the right things, but it's believing the right things and putting them into practice as we seek after the Lord, as we move in his direction. Now, having shared these stories, I have a couple of caveats. I actually have four, so hold on tight. Now, first, I realize that sharing inspiring stories can have an unintended side effect of making us think that we're not doing enough, that we're not living up now to some high bar that an elite few seem to achieve. Look, the problem isn't usually that you need to be doing more for Jesus. You don't need to be doing more. In some cases, you might, but usually not. Instead, The invitation is for you to step into seeing all of life, everything you do, as an opportunity to follow him and serve him and seek his kingdom in the things you're already doing, in the things God has already entrusted to you. You don't have to emulate someone else's life to somehow be serving his kingdom. You might be inspired by it. You might want to imitate things you're seeing, but you don't have to do someone else's call. That's their call. You know, you might be amazed and you might marvel over what they do, but you need to ask, what does it look like for me to be an ambassador of Christ with the things he's given me, who I am, the things I'm passionate about, the gifts I have, the places he's put me in? What does it look like for you to serve Jesus faithfully? That's the question. Some of us preach. Some of us serve the poor. Some of us try to find creative ways to build bridges to the kingdom. Some of us start businesses, and on and on I could go. And in many cases, perhaps most, serving Jesus doesn't look extravagant. It is simple. It's showing up. It's being present. It's loving people well. It's loving people well. It might look like being one of many who help make Alpha happen, or Sunday services right now happen. Little things so that people have space to hear the gospel. It could look like raising kids and loving your kids well and doing your best not to just like pass on your baggage, like to minimize the counseling bills in the future and to raise them to love Jesus. It could just be loving your literal neighbor, supporting them as you can, arranging meals for people who are struggling or being available for someone in their grief and loss and being a small sign of hope and comfort. Whatever it is, it looks like following 
Jesus and asking him, Lord, how can I represent you in this space? St. Francis of Assisi, um, I don't think he said this based off of what we know, but people think he said, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. I'm inviting you to use your life to preach the gospel, but I want to be really clear. Sometimes you have to use words because I have yet to meet someone who preaches the gospel so magnificently through their life that someone falls down on their knees and says, Jesus must be Lord. Preach the gospel always. Embody the gospel in your life. Walk in the ways of Jesus. And when necessary and when opportunity presents it, use words in a winsome and creative and gentle way that explain why you live the way you live. Sometimes you can start there in our context, rarely. But eventually, you've got to use your words. A life that embodies the gospel and a life that proclaims it in a way that you're able. Second caveat. I want to say that the problem of living into the why of the church, it's not simply that the church as an institution needs to be doing more. I hear this complaint, let's just say once in a while. And it can be a fair critique at times. I can own that. But in some cases, the person raising the critique, the person who says the church ought to be doing more, there's actually something else that is going on. That person needs to take ownership of their good idea and run with it. To stop waiting and think, oh, the church as an organization should figure out the structures and get this going so I can step back and be a part of it maybe in the ways I want, but not have to take ownership. No, maybe you have this good idea and it's from the Lord, it's burning on your heart and you have to take ownership. And the church, what we can do is support you and empower you as we're able, connect you with people as we're able, but we can't do everything. We need you to take ownership of what the Lord is stirring in you. And as we're able, we'll empower you. But if you expect the church to do everything that you think the church should do, I'm just going to let you know we will 100% let you down. I'm okay with that. I hope you'll be okay with it in time. Third point. Due to our unique sense of calling and, and gifts, our focus and concerns can be on vastly different things. We need to acknowledge that. There's sometimes this tension. You know, someone gets frustrated because they think the church should be serving the poor and that's what they dedicate their time to and they don't understand why more people in the church, in the local church, are helping them do that. And then you have people who have a deep burning and calling for hospitality and so they're, they're creating all this space to welcome people and help build relationships and they don't understand why more people aren't helping them. And you can go on and on. One person is passionate about integrating faith and work. Another about evangelism and preaching the gospel. And all of us will point to the different parts of Scripture and believe we have scriptural basis for our conviction. And guess what we do? But God has designed the church in such a way that we have a range of gifts, a diversity of gifts. There is overlap but we each will have a focus based off of how God has gifted us and the passions he's stirring in our hearts. You see, when we see our unique calling within the lens of the body, that there are many parts, but one body, we might all have a different role and a different emphasis, but we're working together for one big why, to join Jesus in proclaiming his good news to this world. It will lessen the tension. It will lessen 
conflict because we realize we each have an important role to play and then we can all encourage one another and spur one another on in the love and good deeds that Jesus is calling us to do. It might look different for the person next to you, but that's okay because we have the same why. Last caveat, not my last point. When we approach the mission of Jesus from a place of spiritual poverty, we have to realize we do this from a place of weakness and dependency. From weakness and dependency. Yes, God will work amazingly in and through us and around us. God's going to show up when we pursue him. But not without our weakness. Following Jesus into his mission and being faithful to what he's placing on our hearts It doesn't guarantee a smooth ride, but he promises that he will be enough in our weakness and that our lack or our inability to see how this is going to work out, that is not a limitation for Jesus. He simply says, follow me. Follow me as best as you can. It's going to involve weakness. It's going to involve frailty and vulnerability, but I'll be with you. You see, small steps towards living into the why of Jesus, they're happening all around us all the time. Some of it we're never going to hear of. Sometimes we'll hear stories, and there's still stories yet to be told. You know, it might not mean that you need to leave your career and become an entrepreneur and start a business. Maybe it does. Maybe today's the day you finally stop putting off whatever it is that God's been stirring on your heart. It might look like you just give away a bit more of your time to some of our existing outward partnerships. You work with more than a roof and and help build spaces of hospitality for people in these low-income housing societies that often have no family and friends. And that's how you give your time. Or or you join Kinbrace in helping refugees settle in a strange new land. Or Jacob's Well in the downtown east side. Or Kids for Kids and providing education throughout Rwanda. I mean, there's so many different ways we need your help. But... Living into the why of Jesus, it might just become, it might look like becoming the type of person who doesn't contribute to the cynicism and hopelessness and polarization and antagonism of our age. What if you just become the type of person in your online conversations, your everyday conversations, in the line in the grocery store or in your workplace, as you walk somewhere or as you drive somewhere? What if you just become the type of person who lives well and loves well. And you love well because Christ dwells in you and gives you the love you need to move towards others with love. What if you're the sort of person who has got the sort of graciousness and kindness and gentleness and love in your step that you turn around in a person's day simply because you were kind to them and you noticed them? And what if that eventually gives opportunities to tell people about the goodness of God with you? What if that's what living into his kingdom looks like for you? That excites me. I want that. I don't know about you, but I hope you do. What does it look like for you to be an ambassador of Christ? That's one question, and I want you to ask that. But what does it look like for you to be an ambassador of Christ with us? We don't have to all be in our silos. We might have different callings and senses of what that looks like, but we can work together because we're a body. Finally, quicker point, I promise. The problem of the why. The problem of the why. We're talking about the why of Jesus. We're invited into his why, and we can live with his why, but there's a problem to it. 
There's some big statements out there when it comes to why statements. Here's two that I really like. Starbucks exists to inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person, one cup, in one neighborhood at a time. Drink your Starbucks and you'll be inspired. My personal favorite, McDonald's. McDonald's brand mission is to be our customer's favorite place and way to eat. I could understand favorite place. I mean, that's a terrible decision. I could understand favorite way to eat. I don't know any way to eat McDonald's that doesn't involve some element of shame. Anyhow, there really can be a gap between a company's why and reality. I'm sorry, Rob is just losing it in the vacuum, but there can be these gaps. You know, these kind of mission statements, they get lost in the clouds. And and Jesus comes before us and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So here's the problem. Where is it? Where is the year of the Lord's favor? Where is this perpetual jubilee that we talked about last week? Where is the everlasting kingdom of God? Is the why of Jesus just another Starbucks and McDonald's mission statement? Is is Jesus lost in the clouds? Because we can look at the passage and say, Jesus, this is fulfilled in you? Well, then why is there so much oppression and brokenness and disorder in the world still? Friends, we have to remember, we live between two times. Jesus incarnated and he taught and he preached and he, he showed that the kingdom of God is in our midst because he's in our midst. And then he was crucified, died and buried and raised and ascended to the right hand of God. And he promises from there, after sending his spirit, that he'll return. So he came and he will return. We live between these times and we do not want to lose sight of that. The kingdom of God is here today, but not in its fullness. Scholars call this the already not yet. The kingdom of God is here today. It's small and it's, it's often hidden and it's not always visible, but it's not powerless. It is powerful and it is real and it is a very present reality that we can live into. But more is to come. It's not here in its fullness. It will only arrive in its fullness when Christ returns and is inaugurated as king over all creation, or more accurately, it is revealed that he is king over all creation and everything is subjected to him. Then we'll experience the perpetual jubilee that he proclaimed. He didn't say he would establish it immediately on our timelines. He's proclaiming it. He's giving glimpses and signs of it and he will, when appropriate, return and establish it in its fullness. And so while we wait, we don't give in to passivity. We don't just say, well, Jesus will fix it when he returns. No, he has things for us to do. And we don't give in to despair. Because as bleak as things may seem, we have hope that Christ will work within this reality and he will establish a better one still. So we faithfully seek his kingdom with hope. And while we may think, man, the church has really dropped the ball living into the why of Jesus. And while we could point to the spotted history of the church, we don't want to lose sight that through the church, 
Throughout history, we see the first innovations of social justice, the invention of the hospital and orphanages and education systems and legal systems, the foundations for modern science, just to name a few of the church's contributions to the world. This is what it looks like when the church lives into the why of Jesus. Justin Welby, uh, an Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, he is interviewed by the Telegraph, and the interviewer said the church is good at talking, but not at actually doing things to improve the societal order. Sounds a little bit like James, making an accusation. The church gets faith, but not works. Here's how the archbishop responded. Rubbish, because he's English. Rubbish. It is one of the most powerful sources of social cohesion. Did you know that each month in the UK, all the churches, roughly, roughly half of the numbers being Anglican, contribute 23 million hours of voluntary work outside of what they do in the church. And it's growing. There are now between 1,200 and 2,000 food banks in which the church is involved. Ten years ago, there were none. There are vicars living in every impoverished area in the country. And this springs out of genuine spirituality. We are not just rotary with a pointy roof. That's a snapshot of what the church offers to the world as it seeks to proclaim the gospel in the UK. Can you imagine if we had the data for the global church? We might not always see it because it doesn't make an interesting news story, but the church is alive and well because Christ is alive and well and his spirit has not left us and is empowering us to move toward the world in love as we proclaim his gospel with our lives and with our words. And so as we follow Jesus, as his ambassadors who are continually receiving and extending grace, don't lose sight of the already, not yet. It'll help us deal with some of these tensions. It'll help us deal with the frustration that comes when we don't see the results we hoped for. You see, you might not see the fruit of your faithfulness to God. You might not see the entire dream in your lifetime. You might not see everything you want, the revival you're praying for, or the renewal you're hoping for, but that doesn't mean that you're not import, uh, laying an important foundation for generations to come. You might just be planting seeds that God will grow into something beyond your lifetime. Don't forsake small beginnings. Don't write off insignificance because God is working in those little seeds. The invitation is always just to be a faithful ambassador and to be faithful to the things God is asking you to do. And friends, we're going to marvel and we're going to be amazed because we get to participate in Christ's mission. And when Jesus returns, we get to enjoy his everlasting kingdom forever. And so spurred on by this hope, we faithfully serve him and seek his kingdom here and now. And as we do, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So may we proclaim the good news of Christ to all people, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And may we be ambassadors through the power of his spirit. Let's pray.